Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word to our hearts and minds this morning. Please be seated. Well, this morning's passage, we're only actually covering verses 14 to 20 and dealing with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But I asked Mark to back up and read the beginning, or from the beginning of the chapter, because there's some history that'll play out in understanding the text today. So he, Mark, Mark moved back a little bit, and I appreciate that. I want to take another step. I want to put something before you, a question before you, to get you thinking. So you're not thinking of somebody outside who doesn't stand the, understand the Israelites and what they're going through, but rather you start to process this as an Israelite. So the question I want to ask you, everyone 
start, when I ask you this question, it's intended from how old you are right now, where you stand right now. If today was the very first day that you were granted freedom after being, having been your entire life oppressed by a foreign nation, who, who, and having been constantly under the various forms of evil, whether it's expressed through the idolatry that they, that they, uh, they partook in, or it's expressed through the behaviors that they demonstrated to you as those that were enslaved underneath them, now that you are free, how would you determine what you would do upon your release? How would you determine what you would do upon your release? You have spent all of your life, not just your adult life, all of your life. Everything you know is based on your experiences. Now, you have a weakened understanding of a God, as we will see, that, the, that God, Yahweh, is going to bring his people out into the wilderness to give them a greater understanding of who he is. They need to know who he is. So there is a lack, obviously. Who or what would govern your actions as it relates to your new freedom? Think about that. Could you even trust your own heart? Everything you experience in life claws at an influence into, uh, upon your life. Your past experiences play a role in how you respond, the worldview you see things through, and how you respond to it. Would you even trust your own heart based on all the years that you were a slave? What we're going to see today, we're going to look at the fact that it is not us who are in the position to make a decision on what we do with our freedom. It is actually the one who has secured our freedom that has the right and the authority to determine what we look at as freedom, how that freedom manifests itself in our lives. We need to look at this from God's perspective. And if you'll take your bulletin, you'll see on the back page where we read before um, in the uh, reading of the, uh, the different questions, the responses to the different questions from the catechism, you'll note that there are sermon notes there. The up top, there's the challenge. Sometimes it's a takeaway. Sometimes it's a, a word of encouragement this week. It's a challenge for us. And the challenge is this. How are you using your freedom gained through Christ's work of salvation? Each needs to answer that question separately, and I might even add that the men over their families need to answer that as one who is additionally takes on more responsibility as the leader of your family. So we want to back up a little bit, and this is again going back to what Mark had talked about, or Mark had, excuse me, the scriptures that Mark had read. We want to understand and move into this chronologically what God has done. He started off in verses uh, 1 through 13 giving us an understanding of the Passover meal. And we're going to see that the Passover meal is the start of the seven-day feast or festival that, that, that 
we're going to learn is named the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They're connected. One starts it, the Passover starts it, and then out of the Passover understanding comes this week. And what we're doing, what's the focus of the week? And sometimes we miss it because we didn't grow up Jewish. And some of the terminology and some of the, the festivals we don't understand. We don't understand what they're rooted in. So we need to take a look at that today. What we can know for sure and what we talked about in the, in the last time we were here, about a month ago, talking through Exodus, is that the Passover pictured a lamb that was killed and the death of that lamb stood as justification for that house to be passed over by God. This is, we're seeing the, the tenth and final plague is about to play out, and it's a plague for all of Egypt. It's a plague even directed at the Israelites. So the Israelites are given a, a state of, uh, I'll put it this way, an opportunity to, to experience God's mercy if they will participate in this meal. And next week we're going to see that there, there are some additional requirements of what to do with that blood that was spilled on their behalf. So the key here is to realize that the Passover meal is the atoning or the sacrificial uh, death of a lamb, picturing that one day there would be a death of somebody, they don't know who yet, that would stand in their place so that they did not have to die. We see the, the kernel of understanding. This is God progressively teaching the truth that is going to lead to the understanding that that Lamb of God will be Jesus Christ. And he will be perfect. He will be unblemished as the Lamb was called to be. And therefore, as the God-man, he was able to keep perfection, keep all the law, and therefore was the only sacrifice that could be sacrificed on behalf of God's people he intended to reconcile. There is no other Savior option because there is no other human being that either has or could because there is only one who is God's Son in the flesh, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now that we have that established, he rolls out. He's not repeating himself and going, oh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is kind of the same thing. And there's a couple things of formalities you do. Uh -uh. No, he's working off the foundation or the establishment of salvation coming through sacrifice by another. And then we, we get to this place where we, we start to understand that this, and I, I, I want to give it to you early. Sometimes I'll, I'll be... I'll be uh, frank with you. Sometimes in movies, you get to the end of it, and you go, oh, I wish I would have got that at the beginning, because this whole movie would have made a lot, a lot more sense if I would have got that particular element. Well, I want to give you that element so you don't, so you don't miss it, and you, I'm going to actually take it from a position of proving it to you rather than just showing it to you at the, at the end of it. And this, is, and this is the truth, that out of salvation by way of someone standing in our place and, and sacrificing and taking the penalty for our own sins, comes this week of feasts, excuse me, the, excuse me, I said that backwards, the feast of the unleavened bread, whereby God is telling us what we do in light of the truth of salvation. What are we called to do? And we are called to be holy as he is holy. The whole focus of the week is the doing that comes after the gracious saving. We can do nothing 
as far as the saving. That's all God's work. We understand that. We do not, we cannot boast on that because it's only exclusively God's work by giving us his son and his son willing to do what he did. But there is the week that we experience this feast where in some sense it's a week in that it's bounded by seven days. And in another sense, it not only expresses this holy assembly today, but it expresses in a greater sense our whole life. Our Savior has called us to be a holy people that is like him, holy in his nature. What better way to be able to fellowship with us if there is no hindrance of sin between our God and ourselves? So we see this beautiful focus on holiness. We don't have to guess. When I was a new believer, and this, this, this grace came to me, and I was in a, a, a liberal theology. They knew enough to give me the gospel. And then I said to them after that, what comes next? And they said, I don't know. That's basically what they said. You just kind of be good. That was their theology. They did not understand what, what God is giving us today, that there is purposeful, intentional holiness that should be taking place in the people of God so that we are becoming holy as he is holy. So let's take a look at this. And the outline you have before you, you see the first point there is holiness memorialized in time. We saw that way back at the beginning of the chapter, the Passover was memorialized. Now we see the Passover connected to, the meal connected to, and a part of the week, and the week itself is memorialized as well. So let me read to you, Exodus 12, 14. This day, in other, in other words, the beginning of the exodus from Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. The idea there in the Hebrew is commemorative. It's not just remembering, it's actually reliving that's going on. It's twofold. We're playing an active role in this to, to anchor this memory in our minds. And there's almost a sense of experience that we have shared with those people who actually went through the physical. I will share with you, the physical is just a shadowy picture of the spiritual. The spiritual, that which each of you have experienced if you have repented of your sin and accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That exodus out of your old life is the bigger picture that the Bible points to because it points and gives all the glory to the work of God's Son on the cross. We continue. This day shall be for you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to Yahweh. There's a direction. The object of our worship is Yahweh. The, the word observed there is Hagag. Hagag. It means to observe by way of joyful celebration. So in this verb, it tells you that there's a celebration tied to it. So when we think of what this process is, this week of holiness, I came out of a works-based theology, and holiness was drudgery. You didn't know when you were, well, actually, you did know. Your conscience would let you know. But if you stepped out of line, you expected the big lightning bolt. It wasn't a celebration because you were always terrified you could lose your salvation. That's not what's going on here because he already dealt with the Passover meal, deals with salvation. Now we're doing after salvation. We have this joyful experience of, of a heart that wants to 
realizing that we're going to fall at times, but we want to be holy as our God is holy because it draws us together and we understand our God. We understand life. We understand so much more of how we were designed and the incredible, unique relationship we have with our God that carries us through our day. So it continues on. Keep it as a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations as a statue or an, a statute, an authoritative rule of law. Forever you shall keep it as a feast. Well, the, the, the precept has continued on. It is forever. The meal, exactly how it was demonstrated in, in the Old Covenant, no, that didn't, that didn't carry on. The Passover meal, certainly Messianic Jews, are, they're not prohibited from, from observing it. It helps them understand greater their Jewish roots and how the, that their Jewish Messiah, the Son of God, raised a Jew, was in fact the one who fulfilled this Passover. So it's not that it's forbidden to, but now we see something that's interesting. Have you ever noticed that in the Lord's Supper, we're told to remember, and then we partake just like the Passover. We partake. We relive. We engage in. It becomes personal and real to us, and I will even go so far as to say that and in experiencing this, we understand that God not only gives us grace by way of us praying, and calling out to God by way of us reading his word, but by also participating in the Lord's Supper. It's a picture of him feeding us with the persevering grace that we need for holiness. Don't get all weird and think it's, it's, it's some type of mystical, and some, some religions believe that it is either Jesus' body or it's, it resembles Jesus' body. No, no, no. This is a picture. It's just a symbol of that which was, is real and took place with God dying for us by way of his son. But holiness is not just memorialized. As you look at the next point, holiness requires intentionality. And you'll notice there's two points there. The first of which is the intentionality in the removal of sin. In order to be holy, you have to remove something. And that something is sin itself. Follow me, I need to move a little bit awkwardly through this passage because Moses set this up as a mini chiasm. That means that the, the middle is where the meat is. In fact, Pastor Pete has used this, this uh, terminology. A mini chiasm is where the sides kind of point to the middle and say that that's the important thing. Uh, Pastor Pete in teaching Mark has said that oftentimes you hear the Markian sandwich. The two pieces, the bread on either side, help support the bigger issue inside, the meat of the issue. Well, that's what's happening here, so I need to grab different verses in order to get the same topic talked about. I need to go to the, to the, the bun. I need to go to the bread on this thing for a little bit here. So let's continue on. Exodus 12:15a says this as it relates to removing. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Matzah. Ever heard of matzah, the Jews? I had a Jewish friend that allowed me to take part in the Passover as a young freshman. I did not understand what a matzah ball was. I didn't understand why they were sweeping out, ceremonially sweeping out. What were they sweeping out of the house? Mama was sweeping out the leaven. I was like, wow, I, I didn't even know that for years as a Christian, what that meant. How, why did they do that? So it continues on. Seven days you shall eat unleavened or, or matzah uh, ball, or matzah, 
bread with, and that's bread without leaven. It's a, that leaven is a, a permeating element that permeates the whole bread. And it makes that bread into take a shape that it would not otherwise take without the leaven. So in some sense, that leaven incredibly reshapes that bread. And we'll see this truth borne out in not so good of a way. So let's continue on. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Uh, uh, On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. And then on uh, Exodus 12, 18, 19, I'll say A. A just means the beginning of the verse. B means halfway through the verse. Uh, It says this in 18A through, excuse me, in 18 through 19A. In the first month from the 14th day of the month that evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. It's interesting. We can't see it. Moses is making a word play here. Listen to what it sounds like in the, the Hebrew. He turns a negative into the positive in the Hebrew. Listen to this. It would say this. In other words, in seven days, no leaven. In other words, he's saying only matzah is to be matzahed. The noun for bread, matzah, unleavened bread, is it's matzah. The verb to be found is matzah. He's making a play so that they'll remember. You, you, the only thing that should be found, the only thing that should be matzahed, is matzah. Un- unleavened bread. It's, it's kind of a, a neat play that the kids would be able to get into. In fact, when, when they showed me it, my, my, my buddy that was a uh, freshman was kind of like, he was kind of laughing because he remembers as a kid, mom would let him sweep. And they would be sweeping out the matzah. It was something way to get them involved in that, that, that picture of, of removing from the household the leaven. And no leaven could be found in there. And interestingly enough, matzah in this context actually carries an understanding of being even accidentally found. You can't, you should not be able to even bump into it. You couldn't, you shouldn't be able to open a cabinet and go, oh, oop, there it is. Should have gotten rid of that one. That's the idea of the, of the intentionality that they should go to to make sure that there was no leaven in their house. And then in Exodus 12:20, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread or matzah. Well, let's take a little bit of the context here. Why did God have them, uh, as part of the Exodus, eat unleavened bread, bread without leaven, bread that was not allowed to be, uh, had the element in it that would cause it to rise? And I will tell you, it tastes much better with leaven in it. That's part of one of the features that that leaven does as well. Well, we were told earlier in this chapter that it had to do with the immediacy or the urgency. They had to be expected at moment's notice to go. When God gave the, the, the word, they were to go. Now, at the time of that they're eating this meal, the angel of death is moving through. The angel of death is moving through Egypt. It's moving through the, the, the Egyptian house, the areas, geographic areas, as well as the Israelite area. So they're eating this, and when God says, I'm done, basically, you go and you go now. They go. They, they have their tunics uh, girded up. They have their, the man would have his staff, as it told us, in hand. They were ready to go. They were eating. Some theologians believe they were eating standing up. That's how particular they were about the intentionality. When they get the call, they're gone. They had their go bag and they were going. So that's the, the immediate context. But there's a greater theological context going on, on here. The neat thing about this book 
is as you read this book, you see that he was giving them little bits of information, and I'll go this way. And it starts to arch over, and we start to understand, and he starts to give us more and connect more and connect more. And we start to see that unleavened bread, by the time you make it to the New Testament, there's a whole lot of theology behind it. Unleavened bread became the the symbol of holiness. Now, the night that they experienced it, they probably didn't know it was connected to that. That hadn't been revealed. We see nothing here given that. But we're going to watch Paul in a minute, and Paul's going to use that, and they're going to know exactly. We don't know when this started transition, that it gained more momentum in the understanding of leaven being symbolic of, of, of carrying with it this, this permeating nature of sin. But it's there, and it's real. Le- As I told you before, leaven fundamentally changes the image, the form, the shape of the bread. And we can see Paul just anchor that into his point in a minute. Will you do me a favor? I don't do this very often because I don't like to make a distraction for you, but this is not a distraction. You've got to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with me. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to show you that Paul is looking at this feast when he's dealing with a sin, an unholy situation in the church at Corinth. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul says this. It is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you. He is, he is writing back to the Corinthians church a letter because he can't be in there in purpose. Uh, excuse me, in person. And of a kind that is, toler- that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Oh, my goodness. Church, seriously? The pagans wouldn't even allow this, and you're allowing it, is what he's telling Paul, Paul is telling them. This is a rebuke. For a man has his father's wife, in other words, the son's stepmother. They're involved in a sexual relationship. Let's see what, what the church is doing about it. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, I'm going to suggest here, Paul is actually helping us understand the New Testament always has the right to interpret the Old Testament in a greater theological understanding. It can both mean, the Old Testament can mean what it meant in that context, and then Paul or anybody else that goes, that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit explains something from the past, we go, okay, we have greater understanding because the Holy Spirit is giving him that understanding, and we get it written down in our book. So we can see that somewhere along the line, this connection to leaven and what leaven is, is going to be made and clearly made by Paul. And I would suggest to you, his Corinthian audience understood it. So let's continue on. Jump over to uh, verses 6 through 8. So we just read 1 and 2. Now jump over to 6 through 8. Your boasting, in other words, their arrogance and not taking care of the problem, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The lump is the lump of dough that you make the loaf from. It's kind of interesting. What they used to do and what they were told to do on this particular night is that when the, oftentimes the Jewish people would just take a pinch. When they were making dough that day, they'd take a pinch off, and ladies, you will recognize this, they would put it somewhere warm and damp. And, and that warm, damp little pinch would be used the next day to put in the new dough 
to make sure that that dough was now filled with yeast and would rise. And then they'd take a pinch of it and then they'd save it and they'd keep doing that. And that's the picture here of what they're doing. He's saying, uh, do, not, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the, the whole lump? Of course they do. They eat bread every day. They understand this process. They've seen it as kids. They've watched mom do it. And he continues on, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Cleanse out the old, we're using contrast as an argument, so that you may be new. Get rid of that which was old so that you're going to be something new and clean as you really are unleavened. In other words, you stand unleavened in the eyes of God because you are made holy by the righteous act of Jesus Christ and what he did. However, in practice, we all know that we sin. And in practice, we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. That's what he's talking about. And let's continue on. And this is where you're going to see it anchored in our passage today. For Christ... Our Passover lamb, see the connection Paul's doing to, to the Passover meal and what they didn't know at the time of the Passover meal, that it would be the Son of God, that would be this, this atoning lamb, the substitute lamb. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us there, remember our celebration, that verb we were using from the, the Hebrew uh, that we just saw in, in Exodus 12, let us therefore celebrate the festival it's the festival of the unleavened bread. In other words, here, let's use a different uh, wording for the festival. It's not the festival of unleavened bread to us so much that we have to gain understanding of. It's the, think of it as the festival that marks holiness or celebrates holiness or is intentionally going after holiness. That's what this festival is supposed to point to. So let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, uh, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. That's our old way of life before God did the work of salvation in our lives, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's what holiness is bringing about. Think of your relationships. Do you want to be in a relationship bi-directional, goes, moves both directions, that the person engages you with malice and evil? or particularly as you relate to a relationship with a Christian, or is it better, is it more God-like, is it not God-glorifying if we are engaged in a relationship that in fact is sincere and true? What a, what a depth of relationship. I can have my shortcomings and my wife can go, I love you because I know that you love God and you are working towards holiness. I've seen the intentionality in your life. I can bear with persevering grace that failure of sin because I've seen you be the man or vice versa with the woman as the relationship works both ways, that you are understanding that you have been called to holiness and you are working by way of the power and the person of the Holy Spirit to be holy as God is holy. Let's continue on. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13. This is where we're going to get real clear. Paul is going to explain what our Exodus passage means when it says remove them from the congregation of Israel. Let's take a look how Paul interprets it. Verse 9, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and, or the greedy 
and swindlers or idolaters, since, they, since then you would, have no, you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, hey, I'm not talking about everybody that's out there. I'm talking about people in the church. There's a problem in the church. Church is what he's saying. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, they would get it. This is a rebuke. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If I bear the name of brother, and you don't see me working intentionally, when I say working, I'm coming along the power of what God has given us and by way of the indwelling spirit. Please don't hear this as a performance-based salvation. We already talked about salvation comes by God. It's by grace. This is our part in bringing about our sanctification, our change. If I call myself brother and I am not working towards, towards holiness, you have reason to question my saving grace, my salvation. Why is it? God has given us instructions that we move from salvation in a direction of becoming holy as our God is holy. Why is this not taking place? Why can you go about this callously as this, this church is doing? As we see here, the Corinthian church. Let me continue on back to verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, I, wanna, I will suggest to you that is willful practice. That is not one-time sin or intermittent sin. We all fall to idolatry. There is nobody in here that is not at some time a, an idolater through your week. You worship something else that takes you away, and you end up sinning against God. So in some sense, we're all idolaters. It is not saying, oh, well, look, you're an idolater, therefore you, you, I can't have anything to do with you. It's not saying that. It's talking about willful practice. You, you, are, you want, that's the desire of your heart, you want to be that which he is describing. And then verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So what are you called to do? Purge, which means excommunicate. Remove from fellowship of the church. Remove from the roles of the church. Remove their standing in the church because you cannot prove their standing because they don't care about holiness. I cannot verify based on the fruit you are producing that you are, in fact, a believer. In fact, you willfully go the opposite direction of what the Word of God says. Purge the evil person from among you. So here's the point of all this as it relates to removing sin. The people of God must be intentionally focused on holiness, the removal of sin in our lives. We will not, unfortunately, stop sinning on this side of eternity, but we will sin less as we place our trust in God, and he works through us. You coming here today is designed by the Holy Spirit to use his word that he gave us to use it to transform your hearts. You are taking part, I pray, with all intensity, with all intentionality, wanting to hear and be transformed, to be holy as he is holy. So, but there's another kind of intentionality. Let's look at uh, chat, excuse me, verse 16 of Exodus. Exodus 12, verse 16. And this is the intentionality and the removal of the common. Let's take a look. It says this. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly. We are right now in. in we are participating in a holy assembly. 
This is an assembly called by God that we, should, we partake in once a week. This is a holy assembly. And yet, are we removing that which could be an obstacle to that? Listen to this. On the first day, you, sh- you shall hold a holy assembly, in other words, a set-apart assembly, a uniquely different assembly that stands before Yahweh with the desire to be more holy like him. And on the seventh day, so bookending, we're going to start this feast on, on day one, we're going to end it on day seven, and we're going to have a holy assembly like what we're doing right now on either end of it, a holy assembly. And then he's going to say, what makes a holy assembly? He's going right down to the context. This is not the only thing, but this is certainly on Moses' mind. This is, this is intentionally given to him by God. And it says this, No work shall be done on those days. He's talking about the whole of the feast. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. So no activity on, and the, during this feast, and I'm going I'm to uh, do a hyperlink to New Testament, to today's holy calling. The church, you have been called by God through the officers of this church to meet today corporately as a people of God differently than we meet all week long. And in the midst of this, we are called to do certain things that do not distract us. And he lays it out by saying, no work shall be done in those days. The understanding is no common, no routine work that you do on the other days is to be done except the eating of. And let me give you a better clarification of this. This gives you an idea that what is the, what's the point? Am I supposed to make a list and go, okay, not this, not that, oh, no, oh, no, me and my wife are going to argue on that one. No, 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 no. Don't get so, so hung up in this, in this specificity of it. And well, my, my house does this, but Pastor's Peace House does that. No, listen, what is it that is routine in your daily, week? That if you do it on the day, this, the Lord's day, it will detract, it will take away, it will be a hindrance from you seeing this day as a holy, set-apart day that is given for worship of God. And I will challenge you on this. It is called the Lord's day. It is not called the Lord's hour. That was a hard one for me. As a new believer, I thought I was giving God a lot by giving God an hour of my day on a Sunday. An hour? That's all you got, Nick? It's called the Lord's Day. Now, I will give you this also. Please do not hear this. Please do not judge your neighbor. God is bringing all of us along this track of sanctification. Be gracious in knowing that everyone is in a different place probably. We're not all the same. But God has still called us. God is working by the power of the Holy Spirit to convict us of, i got to take a look at what I'm doing. Is what I am doing taking away from that which makes this day holy. That gives me the opportunity to be made holy on this day because I'm focusing on God and he's using the person of the Holy Spirit to transform me. Or am I this little, this this, this person that says, I can handle about an hour's worth of transformation and then that's all I got, God. And I'm overwhelmed. I don't know. I was there. It's taken me years to continue to add and see this day as a full day. And I don't want the common there. And I see other people that are in different places that are, seem to be in a place that is even more pers- purposeful than me. And I say, Lord, I want to be there one day. But I don't sit there and I, I don't covet that. I don't judge others and go, hey, you're not up to me yet. Don't do that. 
then you become back into performance-based. You're letting it slip back into a wrong understanding. But we need to realize that we have to look at our day, particularly on the Lord's Day. What are we doing? Is this unique? Could someone sit, you know, be attached to our hip the whole day and see that, man, you, you do things completely different on, on Sunday. I don't know what that looks like in your family. But men, we're the one that lead our family. We need to consider this. We have number three. Holiness can't know indifference. Exodus 15b, or this last half of Exodus 12.15. Excuse me, 12.15b. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off. Theologians go back and forth on, does that mean destroyed, exterminated? Does that mean thrown out of the religious community? And we just saw what Paul said. Paul said, look, if you don't want holiness, are you part of the covenant people of God? Are you part of the people of God that Christ has died for? Or do you trample on the blood of Christ? And interestingly enough, as we have seen over and over again through Genesis and Exodus, God gives us over to our own sinful heart. And therefore, if you don't want to be the people of God, God will assist you. If you don't want holiness and you don't want to be a part of a people being made holy, God will assist you in saying, church, remove the person. Remove them. You know, as I, as I move my head about, please don't hear. Sometimes you can feel personal if I happen to look at you. If I had, I'd probably be better off if I had a mirror up here so that you can see that I'm looking at my own self as it relates to this. Our faith is, is evidenced through our willingness to be holy as our God. What would our evidence convict us of? Could it convict us of being a Christian? The day is coming sooner than you realize of the day that we will be persecuted as Christians. Could you be convicted in the court of this land, guilty, you are a Christian, and then be left to the, to the designs of the court? Finally, holiness, as we see, is rooted in God's saving work. This is the meat. This is where Moses has pointed everything so we don't mess it up and get it backwards and turn it into the performance-based salvation. He says this in Exodus 12, 17, and you shall observe uh, the feast of unleavened bread. In other words, the feast of holiness. For this very day, I, I and he emphasizes I, God is the one that has done the work of salvation. I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, because of this act of salvation, you're supposed to do this. And the supposed to do this is written here. Therefore, you shall observe. It's a different word for the observe in other places. It means to keep watch over or guard yourselves. You are to observe this day throughout your generations. You are to observe, keep watch over your heart, and guard it that you are tracking in a trajectory that is consistent with gaining holiness by way of cooperating with the person of the Holy Spirit, the one who makes us holy. So church, I leave you with this challenge. It's the challenge I opened with. How are you using your freedom, your freedoms, I would say, plural, gained through Christ's work of salvation? My prayer is that we will go home, 
will talk about it with our spouse. If we are single, we will pray over it, and we will assess it, and we will make another incremental directional change based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be holy as our God has made it possible for us to be holy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you don't just save us and leave us. You don't just say, hey, figure it out. You say, hey, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be with you. Lo, I am with you till the end of the age, Jesus said before he ascended. And you have given us the person of your Holy Spirit. None of what we do is in our, our own will. Philippians tell us is that you will and work in us. You get all the credit even in, in, in sanctification. We merely cry out, please give us the hearts. Let us demonstrate obedience to you. Give us the conviction. And we thank you that you do the work that only you can do in changing the hearts of men and women for your glory and certainly for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.